0: Hello, and welcome to this Head Talks podcast. I'm Terry Diasny, and I've been talking to Pandit Dasa about his journey from urban monk to motivational speaker. What can his experience of emerging from years of seclusion, even in a busy world, teach us all in challenging times?
1: My name is Pandit Dasa, and I'm a former monk. I lived as a monk for 15 years in New York City, up until seven years ago when I left the monastic life. I'm a motivational keynote speaker and a mindfulness and meditation expert. And so, you know, when I was living as a monk, most people ask me why I became a monk. Well, it's a really long story, and I don't know if I can get into the whole thing now. But basically, we, I grew up in Southern California, where my parents went from having nothing to having a very successful multi-million-dollar jewelry business. And at one point in the early 1990s, we ended up losing everything, went completely broke. And then at that point, we ended up in post-communist Bulgaria to explore new business opportunities and then came back to the U.S. From there, I went to a monastery in India to sort of explore life, my own purpose in life and how I wanted to live in this world. Came back and moved into a monastery in New York City, spent 15 years living as a monk and speaking on college campuses to students on mindfulness, work-life balance. And then about seven years ago, I left the monastic life to speak on mindful leadership, workplace culture, and corporations around the globe. And so that's what I've been doing for the past seven years.
0: The first thing I wanted to ask you, really, you say you lived as a monk in New York City. Obviously, that's one of the busiest, noisiest, uh, most you know vibrant places in the world. Was it much more of a challenge to be a monk in the city than it was, say, to live in a monastery on a remote mountainside somewhere contemplating the sunrise?
1: Well, I never lived in a monastery <laughs> on a mountainside, so I don't know how to compare the two, but for me, I was fine living in the big city because the big city, what it did was as I was learning to go deep within my own self for my own meditation, I was also simultaneously given the opportunity to serve the busy, stressed-out New Yorkers that I was living around. So I found it to be very practical and that whatever I was learning, very quickly I would have a chance to apply it and also teach it to others. And And if you can learn how to meditate and get a good perspective on life, While living in a busy environment, because that's what real life is. Real life isn't us living on a mountaintop, living in an isolated environment, we're just surrounded by trees and wild animals. Real life is going to work, it's getting on the subway, the bus, taking a taxi, running while you're grabbing your breakfast, running into your first meeting. So, being in that environment, I feel really prepared me to speak to organizations and to speak to individuals who are living very busy, nonstop, hectic, stressful lives. So it helped me just understand the nature of my own mind, helped me manage my emotions a little bit better, and also helped me help others as well.
0: So it sounds like when you decided to leave that life seven years ago, it wasn't perhaps as dramatic a transition as it might have been if you had been spending your sort of monastic years cut off from the world how did you learn to readjust to being in a in a very different environment again
1: well that's uh, as you just mentioned that because I was already living in New York City so the adjustment wasn't that difficult it's not like I was going from isolation to a big city I was just went from a big city and I continued to live in New York City another several years and then you know lived in Jersey City which is also very very busy and congested and a very hectic environment so I think that just by being in that certain environment for so long the adjustment period made it a little bit made it a lot easier and not that the whole process of leaving the monastic life behind was necessarily super easy but in terms of adjusting to the busyness I was already in busyness. And so that part was easy, you know, trying to figure out exactly what I was going to do after spending 15 years living as a monk, trying to figure out what I'm going to do in terms of how to earn a livelihood, earn a living. There was some challenges. There was some time that it was needed to figure that out. Fortunately, because I had done so many speeches and talks to college students, public speaking seemed like the very natural thing for me to do, which is the field that I entered as I was leaving the monastic life.
0: So we've all been through a very strange period over the last couple of years. And I'm obviously, I'm not suggesting that we've all been living a monastic life in any way. But most of us have been cut off from our usual worlds of seeing friends of traveling, perhaps of going into the office and all those kinds of things. And hopefully, we're starting to come out of that now. What did you learn about reemerging into the world that might Help some of the rest of us deal with this transition back to hopefully a more normal life
1: well i think one is just the mindset i think it's so important for us to really deep down accept that you know the world is constantly changing and change a lot of it will show up at our door without us knowing when it's going to come it doesn't really give us a warning And this was obviously the biggest change that globally humanity experienced as a whole. Usually maybe there's some uh, tragedy happening in one part of the world that doesn't affect the rest of the world, but here this thing affected everyone. And I think the the healthiest way to go about dealing with not just what happened in the pandemic and anything happens in life, we should just know that life is going to keep changing things up on us. It's not, there's not going to be a lot of consistency in terms of just work or relationships, There are going to be changes. There are going to be challenges and there's nothing we can do to stop them. We just have to prepare our mindset when they do show up to realize that, okay, here's another change that life is throwing my way and I have to learn to adjust to it. I have to learn to accommodate it. I, it doesn't help to fight it, to complain why it's happening. Yes, the mind initially wants to go in that direction then it wants to, first it wants to complain then it wants to blame others oh the pandemic you know these are the people that were responsible for the pandemic and these are the people that are responsible for this or this person's responsible for that really so all of that is pretty useless chatter that our mind comes up with blaming and wishing it didn't happen because it, it it's absolutely useless it doesn't accomplish anything so i think it's important that we adjust our mindset when these things do happen like okay it's here now. Let me spend time figuring out how to deal with it in the best and most important way. It's like, it's like like if you get stuck in quicksand, you could spend time figuring out how you didn't see it and why you're there. Or you could spend time trying to figure out how to get out, which I think is much more productive.
0: And, you know, using your quicksand analogy there, you talked about, you know, fighting, complaining, blaming. I guess a lot of people might feel a fear, fear that, you know, dreadful things are going to happen again, fear that they're not going to be able to readjust. I mean, is is it's not worth it? You, I suppose you would suggest being afraid that there's even more quicksand around the next corner.
1: See, fear is natural for human beings and animals and everyone. Right. We do live in constant fear to some degree or another. Oh, gosh, I hope I don't get sick. Oh, gosh, I hope I don't lose my job. Oh, my gosh, I hope my relationship works out. You know, so we, we do have a certain level of fear. That is inside of us, I feel, almost constantly. We're thinking about something that's making us afraid or worried. So as human beings, I think that is normal for us to have that fear. However, when we start coming up with new fearful ideas of things that might happen, I, that that is actually a thing where we can we have the power to stop our mind from doing that, where we really just have to say, you know what, I'm pausing this thought, and I'm not entertaining it. I'm throwing it right into the trash bin. Because there's no need to come up with stuff that hasn't happened yet. Oh, my gosh, what if there's another variant after Omicron? Oh, and then what about another variant after? Wait, let's wait. When it shows up, then we deal with it. Let's not create an earthquake when there isn't one. Let's not create a hurricane when there isn't one. When it shows up, let's hope that we've learned stuff from our previous difficulties that we've experienced, that that we've developed resilience and strength, and wisdom, and maturity, so when the new one shows up, to like, okay, here it is, wait, I'm ready to deal with it, or I'm going to figure out how to deal with it. I'm not blaming, I'm not going to accuse, I'm not going to complain, I'm just going to get ready for it, whatever that means, I'm going to just prepare for it, and that's the most productive thing to do at that time, and the healthiest too.
0: I'm interested that you talk there about resilience. I think that's a quality that we've all kind of come to learn a bit more about recently. How is that something that you can go about cultivating? And what other tools, I suppose, have you brought with you from your monastic life and practices into the everyday world of now?
1: So, you know, there's a nice quote from Steve Jobs that I like. He says that you can only connect the dots when you look back. You can't connect the dots in your life when you look forward. So, which is true because we don't know what the future holds. But what we do have is our past. And we can choose to grow from the painful and difficult things that have happened to us in the past. So, resilience, you know, it's like a spring when you squeeze it and then it bounces back, right? So, that's resilience, our ability to bounce back and bounce out of the challenges that we've experienced. So the way we become resilient is when we look at our past and analyze the difficult things that have happened and then start to extract the positive lessons we've learned from that situation. And we need to do this with as many situations in our past as we can, especially the big difficult things that happen because there are so many incredible jewels and a, that that that's a treasure of growth in those difficult situations. But oftentimes we don't bother opening the treasure chest. We just look at the problems and the pain that it caused us. So resilience is being able to grow from the painful and difficult things that that have happened to us, and extracting the lessons, opening that treasure box, and taking all that treasure out, and then help. That is what's going to help us deal with the next situation. So even when So, first of all, we do this for the things that have happened to us in the past. And then it trains us. So, when a difficult situation comes into our life, even in the moment that it's coming into our life, we're able to tell ourselves that this is painful and this is causing me discomfort, but I know it's going to help me grow in ways I can't imagine. It may take me six months, a year, or two years, or three years to fully realize the treasures that we're hiding in this difficult situation. And so when we can grow like that with all the all the complaining and blaming, that's how we become resilient. If we stay stuck in the complain and blame sort of ca- section, then growth isn't really taking place and, and then we haven't become a different person than who we were before.
0: You've talked about resilience and kind of preparing yourself for new challenges. I noticed that you said you were originally someone who wasn't very confident at speaking in public, and you are now obviously somebody who is very fluent and eloquent uh, speaker. How is that something that you managed to change about yourself?
1: So it sort of happened to me. <laughs> I, You know, people just don't believe it when I tell them that I was terrified of public speaking, that I lacked all kinds of confidence growing up, getting up in front of even three people or four people to say anything, to open my mouth in front of a few people. I just couldn't do it. The change sort of happened to me over time, but the biggest change happened was when I was in the monastery. I went into the monastery not thinking I'm going to be speaking to people. I went in there to learn to meditate, to learn about spirituality, to learn about philosophy, how to live a peaceful and happy life. And what happened was as I was learning, I was asked, as were the other monks, to start teaching to those who were visiting the monastery, to a few, two people, five people, ten people, and at first I was terrified. I'm like, well, that's not what I came here for. I'm like, I don't want to do that. That's so uncomfortable. Anything but that. Um, I'll stand on my head if you want me to. Don't have me do that. But then it was just a few of us and we needed to teach. We're like, we're in a city. This isn't a cave in a jungle. This, we're, in a, we're in Manhattan. And so that means people are coming here to look for peace and happiness. And wouldn't it be just a super act of selfishness if we just kept it to ourselves, living in a place like this and not sharing it with others? So gradually I started to share and it took me a good couple of years. And then I started talking to bigger audiences, 10 people, 15 people, 30, 50, 100. And then I was just doing so many talks that gradually I just, it took me a couple of years. I would say two to three years when I started to feel comfortable, the first couple of years were painful because I was really scared. I, you know, when you do something enough times, you just get comfortable with it. And that's what happened. I was just sort of called to do it. It was sort of um, a requirement in the monastery to, to teach others for the most part. It wasn't like forced upon us, but then I'm like, you know, I told myself, I'm here. If I don't take time out to teach others, like, and serve others in this way, then I'm really doing a disservice and I'm sitting in a monastery in a selfish mood and I'm not really trying to serve others. So I kind of pushed myself to do it and got a lot of encouragement and gradually over the years, I can't believe this is what I do for a living now. It's the last thing I would have ever thought. I mean, it would have been easier probably for me to become an astronaut than to be a public speaker, but somehow life had different plans for me and uh, I didn't plan to do any of this, to become a monk or to become a public speaker. Two things I would have never imagined. But here I am <laughs> doing exactly those things. And now, fortunately, I, I love what I do.
0: So when you're talking, I know now you do a lot of talking to, to students, to people working in business and so forth. How do you get people to switch out of you know a culture which I suppose is often likely to be about complaining, blaming Saying that something somebody has done else has done something wrong, and I want this changed right now. How do you teach people to switch into a slightly different mode of being? I suppose that you're describing now.
1: Well, one thing is, it see all of this complaining is happening in our mind, and so I try to tell people that our mind is a lot like a smart device. How is that? You know, the more apps we have open in our smart device, the more it drains the battery. And then our mind is also like a smart device. We have hundreds of apps open. But the powerful thing is that we can actually close out the apps in our mind. So when our mind starts complaining, so we do have to see our mind like a smart device. When we, do, when we see it complaining, we should recognize that that's an app I can close out right now. So it's all about training ourselves to recognize when our mind is having a complaining moment. You know, it's not like, okay, sometimes we need to complain. That's fine. But it just shouldn't become a habit. So when I when we catch ourselves having a dwelling on a negative thought for too long or complaining we really need to just pause and say hey is this really doing me any good right now? No? Okay, I'm going to press the pause on this thought and then I'm going to swipe it out. I'm going to close it out. And you'll be surprised we actually can close it out and you feel immediate relief when that thought has left your mind. And it's not easy in the beginning because our mind seems to enjoy dwelling on negative and complaining behavior. It likes to just dive in and latch onto it and just sort of, we just drain our energy. So in that moment, we have to build the mental strength to say, I'm not entertaining this thought any longer. I'm going to close, swipe it, close like I would an app. And then you realize, when you do that enough times, you realize how much power you actually have to close out those negative draining apps that are in the mind and how much more productive and focused and stress-free we can be when we learn to apply that skill set of closing out the apps in our mind.
0: So that sounds like a quite a powerful technique for being able to focus on what is important in the moment. What else do you sort of suggest or or try to teach people in order to... Make people more mindful and perhaps less stressed about all the the worries and these these apps that going off in your head.
1: Yeah, so like I said, that we will worry. We we're going to have apps open, and again, there's nothing wrong when that happens. It is going. That's going to be our first immediate response, and then how we deal with it, like closing it out, is the next step. So that's the key thing, and then also making sure that we are taking care of our mental and emotional and physical health, because the healthier we are mentally and emotionally and physically, the better we'll be able to deal with stress. So that means, what do we do? So one message that I always communicate is that self-care is not selfish, and we shouldn't be afraid to take care of our mental health, emotional health, and physical health. Like the airline industry tells us, we should put our own oxygen mask on first, before helping someone else. That's not a message promoting selfish behavior. It's an essential and practical message. How can we help others if we can't help ourselves? So some of the things that we need to do is making sure that we're getting enough sleep, six to eight hours, good disconnected sleep, disconnected from our devices, not working late into the night, not not sending emails from our bed, really dimming the lights in the home, turning off the blue light on your smart device so it doesn't interfere with the production of melatonin, just preparing and planning your sleep so that you're going to get a good night's sleep. Because when we wake up rested, we have energy to deal with the stress and anxiety. If we are regularly and consistently not getting enough sleep, research shows that lack of sleep can impact mood, memory, health, and judgment. I mean, what can we accomplish if our mood is off and our memory is not functioning properly and, uh, you know, our judgment is impaired? We can't accomplish anything. So making sure that we're getting enough sleep, that we're eating a healthy diet, right? planning our meals, eating as healthy as possible, not eating late at night, making sure we're paying attention to our relationships, staying in touch with people, people that nourish us and at the same time giving back to others who may be in need. If we can do these types of activities and be mentally and emotionally nourished and physically strong, that is how we're going to be able to cope with the uncertainties, the anxieties and stresses of life.
0: That sounds like great advice. I mean, when things are getting a bit too much for you, for yourself, you obviously have years of of practice in, in dealing with this. But do you ever wish that you were sort of back in retreat from the world slightly, you know, do you ever have that urge to to go back to your old life? Or do you still occasionally maybe go on retreats to to take a bit of time away?
1: Well, I think we all, uh, when we go through a difficult moment, I think we all remember back to a time when things were more peaceful in our life, right? I think that's just normal for a human being to do. Like, oh, yeah, things were so great when I was in high school. I had no worries. Oh, yeah, things were so great when I was here doing that. That's so that's normal. We, we will do that. And I, and I think that's that's a normal human thing to do when you're stressed a lot and you're like, oh, gosh, things were so more peaceful when I was over there or when I was doing this, that, that kind of thing. So, But for myself, I 100% do. I make sure that I take time for myself, whether it's a retreat or just you know take a, a day or just make sure the weekend is something that I – Really utilize to nourish myself. You know, my schedule is a little flexible because you know being self-employed, so there's some advantages to that, and the other disadvantage is you're always thinking about work. <laughs> but the you know so, but I do have a flexible schedule, and I make sure that I utilize that flexible schedule to nourish myself, to go on walks, to spend time with friends, having conversation with friends. That nourishes me a lot. For me, I'm more of an extrovert, so I do enjoy spending quality time with my friends and family and just going on walks or getting away out of town, even if it's not too far away. It's not like a big trip, but just a a couple hours away and taking a couple days to nourish myself. So I do all of these things.
0: I know a lot of people have said that, you know, at the moment we are living in particularly anxious times for a variety of reasons, obviously the pandemic, um, politics more generally. Is that something that you recognise and do you have any in know, particular ways of, of coping with that beyond what you've already said?
1: So, I mean, there are, you know, there's always something going on politically that a lot of people aren't going to like, right? That That's always going to be there. I don't know if there's ever going to be a time where politically or whatever's happening in our culture, there's always upheavals in culture and society. <clears throat> Excuse me. So, you know, as long as there are, you know, issues like, and, and I think that, I don't know how long they'll be, they'll probably be there forever. As long as there are people who demonstrate racist behavior or gender biases or just unethical behavior, there are always going to be things in human culture that are upsetting and disturbing and frustrating right? They're always going to be there. I just don't see when that's going to happen around the world. You go to any part of the world, there's something crazy happening in every part of the world at any given time. And so we've got our own, you know, in our own countries, we have our own baggage that we're really unhappy with. But then you start looking at what's happening in another part of the world. They're dealing with some other crises. So that is sort of a part of the fabric of our culture, human culture, as long as there's human beings, there's going to be problems. (laughs) So, you know, we can't get rid of problems. But I think really just understanding what I can do, you know, can I change anything about the situation? If I can't, then at least what I can do, I have the power to work on myself. I have the power to change myself for the better. I have the power to become kinder, more compassionate, more fair, more just, right? More patient, all of these things to be less judgmental. And I think if we focus on our energy, on improving ourselves, then, you know, like Gandhi said, right? make Be the change you wish to see in the world. So if we focus our energy on improving ourselves, and when we become improved, we'll notice that people around us will notice and it'll inspire them to make some changes. We may not be able to, and maybe we are able to make a bigger political difference. And if we can, great, go for it. And know that when you do, you'll make a bunch of people happy and you'll make a bunch of people unhappy. But there's no getting around that. I'm never going to please everyone all the time. And it's futile to think that we will. So I think that, you know, so when I... Think about all the stuff that's going on in the world, and sometimes it's overwhelming. I'm like, okay, let me come back down to earth. Let me come back down to the present moment. What do I need to do? What does Pundit need to do to be a better human being tomorrow, the next month, next year? I try to identify a couple things that I need to work on, and then I try to implement that into my life. And, of course, a big part of it has to do with just my own meditation practice, which I do every single day. And that really helps me reflect, contemplate, develop self-awareness, and just sort of really realize that you know all changes start with me. They have to be internal first. And then as a result of the internal change, external changes will start to manifest.
0: That's great. Thank you so much for talking to us.
1: Yeah, it was my pleasure. Thank you so much.
0: Thanks for listening to this Head Talks podcast. We hope you found it helpful and interesting. You can find many more talks on our website at headtalks.com or listen to our podcasts on all the usual channels.